Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome again to another Loving the Christ Life. Happy to have you with us today. And this program is presented by the Christ Life Fellowship. Be sure and go to our website. Check us out, christ-life.org. Well, we have been in this wonderful session with Warren Litzman on renewing the mind. This is from a live conference that Warren had, Warren and Robbie had, in South Africa years ago. And today, we are presenting part four. Let's get right into it. Here's Warren. Second point. On the day of Pentecost, a lot of wonderful things happened. Are you aware of that? I'm sure you are. Some, some of you come up through Pentecostal circles, and you heard that preached a lot. I used to preach on the day of Pentecost like you never heard. That was the greatest thing in my ministry, what happened on the day of Pentecost, because I was helping people get the Holy Ghost uh, and uh, do all these wonderful things. But it was a great day. You know what the greatest thing was about the day of Pentecost? It isn't the fulfillment of the harvest. It isn't the fulfillment of the Judaistic feast day. Some people are starting to celebrate it as a feast day. We're missing the point. You know what the greatest thing was about the day of Pentecost? That's when God began a new dispensation. And when we keep celebrating the old dispensation, we are missing the new. The new dispensation was grace. That's where grace started. What is grace? When God no longer depends on man, but depends on Christ. He couldn't do it till the cross was finished and Christ had been buried and resurrected and ascended. As a result of that, the day of Pentecost presents a whole new dispensation called grace, where God saves men by the death of another. That's a big thing. Wonderful they got the Holy Ghost. Wonderful they talked in tongues. Wonderful 3,000 were saved. But that's also the day that God began a new way to deal with people. Grace. A new dispensation of God dealing with us differently. This really takes mind renewal to understand it. You know why I preach law? I can't talk about others. Uh, Three-fourths of the preachers today preach law. So I won't talk about them. I'll talk about me before I was converted. I preached the law. I preached it strong and hard. If I could find something wrong, I preached on it. If somebody did something wrong in the body, I preached on it. I was upholding purity, righteousness, holiness, all of which didn't matter to God at all. It was because I had so commingled everything in the Scriptures with the fact that God had saved me by the death of Jesus Christ, but I was going to take everything everybody said in the Bible that we needed to do and place that in with it, saying if you don't do it, you may not be saved or stay saved. Consequently, I had many, many converts because I had people saved again and again and again and again. In my own church, my own relatives, it was endless. Always lost. Always getting saved. <laughs> the burden on people that it's what you do that makes you righteous is the most cruel thing we've done since Jesus died. Now, it wasn't a bad thing before he died because that's the way God dealt with people. The burden was on you to do right. 
That's what the Old Testament's all about. If you didn't do right, you're going to be punished for it. But then when Jesus died on the cross, God changed his, his plan. His plan moved into a whole different understanding of his love. Moved to grace. Jesus would not have needed to die if he intended us to continue to preach law. That that's what saves us. Now law, uh, you may not understand. I'm not just talking about Moses' law. I'm talking about uh, maybe 640 different things of the Torah that was added to the Ten Commandments. And then the 35,000 different laws that was added by the Holiness Church. <laughs> I'm talking about that law that man said, we put our hands on this to handle it now. And this is going to determine your fellowship with us. This is going to determine whether you're saved or not saved. And you can get brainwashed till you believe that because I diligently tried to brainwash people. So you can get to the place to where people believe that. But what that does, that gets rid of grace. Put your friends to this day who will say, it takes a little bit of law to go with grace or grace won't work. Now they sincerely believe that. I know because I did myself one time. When I moved from law, I moved to commingle law and grace. And then finally I moved to grace. It's been a great adventure just following me around to see what, <clears throat> to see what I was going to do next. But that's the way I've had to walk. I've had to make that move. And every, every time I made it, it was a hardcore choice. I tell you, I thought it would destroy me. I thought every time... I would get closer to what the Scripture said. It would kill me, believe it or not. A whole lot easier to believe what somebody tells you than to believe what this book says. So to come to grace means that you are no longer depending on anything you do to be saved. So often people say to me, what about religion? What do you mean when you use the term religion? To me, religion is anybody who attempts to do something within themselves to please God. That's religion. Anything you do within yourself to please God is religion. Now that hurts, doesn't it? Because you felt at one time, I'll carry Sister Susie this cake. She's not feeling good and that'll make me feel better. Meant nothing to God because that doesn't make you a better person. You should do that because you love her. Not because of the feeling that I'll be a better Christian if I do this. Sometimes we say, well, I'm going to really read the Word. I'll read more and more of the Word and that'll make me a better Christian. Not necessarily. Because there is nothing you can do within yourself to please God. Now, most of the things we do within ourselves pleases us. And that gives us a good feeling until our next crisis comes and we say, My God, I did all these good things. Why would you let this happen? But you see, he wasn't interested in any of that. His interest is that you trust what he has done. We go back to the historical record. What is it Israel didn't do that hurt God so badly? They didn't trust what he had done. He had taken his own son and sent him to this earth, and they didn't trust God in what he had done. Well, what makes you think that God's going to trust something you do? Now that he gave that son to die on the cross. No, sir. It doesn't work like that. So the new day of grace was where God stopped trusting us. You say, well, isn't there something we ought to do? That's right, love Him. Love Him. 
You say, then what I ought to do to please God? What should I do to please God? Do what you know is right. How do you like that? You better put that in your notes. You want to please God? Just do what you know is right. Somebody comes to me often and they say, well, I don't know much in the Bible. I don't know if I can ever please God. I love to talk to them because I say that doesn't matter to God what's in the Bible. What matters to God is that you live in the light that you have. I can take you to Scripture after Scripture. I like John 1 and 7 best on that because he said, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship. What is light? What you know. What you know. James said it better. If a man knows to do right and he doeth it not to him, it is sin. What is it that pleases God? Most of all, what pleases God? To do what you know you ought to do. Anytime you don't do what you know you ought to do, James calls it sin. Now I have to admit, James is still under the law in his epistle, but it's a, probably a good law thing. Spread once in a while. That's what grace meant. Grace meant that God could now trust you. Stop and think about it for a moment. A new convert comes to God. They've been ungodly, wicked, mean, and they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have Christ in them. You want a definition of grace? Here it is. Christ will come and live in that ungodly person. You say, I thought they got saved. Yep, got a change in spirit, but no change in soul. No change in body. What is the grace of God then? That Jesus would live in us when we first accept Him, when we didn't know and didn't understand and couldn't live all the principles in this book but believed that God had saved us by His grace. That's grace. That's grace. So in the process of time, what happens? You bring body and soul under subjection. That's where hearing the Word and waiting before God and praying and reading your Bible and all of the works you do come in because what that's doing is bringing you under subjection to the Christ that already indwells you. That's what grace is. Because this new dispensation began, then it was up to Paul to see that the minds were renewed. Three times in his writings, he outright makes the statement about Judaism and Moses' law. Three times, and I, I, all three verses will say the same thing in a different way. But he says, the law is past. It is over. It no longer is available to you. Now why would anybody want to turn around and say, well, it takes a little bit of law to serve God? I want to tell you something. Uh, I'm a preacher who's preached law and grace. You want me to tell you something about human beings? It didn't matter what I preached to them. If they didn't love God, whether I preached love or grace, they did as they pleased. Yes, sir. Why? Law doesn't stop people from sinning. I'll tell you what law does. It kills you. You may have heard about some of preachers we've had in the States, a couple of them who were most famous and fell into sin. <clears throat> Friends of mine, you want me to tell you about both of them? I'll say this to their face. They should know it by now. You know what was wrong with them? They tried to live the law. They were heavy preachers of the law. You say, what did that have to do with their sin? The law breeds sin. 
Paul said, Romans 7, the law will kill you. It swayed me. Next time you hear somebody saying, well, we got to have law, just say, I'll wait. It'll kill you or somebody else before it's all over. Kill them how? Spiritually. My friends have suffered the loss of ministries. Both of them. They're saved. They're going to go to heaven. They did a great work for God in time past. But the law killed their spiritual life. Where to kill it? In the soul mind. The soul mind. It's a little wonder Paul said then that you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul preached the renewed mind because a new messenger had been raised up himself. A new messenger had been chosen to preach this message. I told you earlier about Paul being the meanest man and God chose him to exemplify grace. But now I want to tell you something else about Paul. <clears throat> From my probably limited understanding of the Scriptures, I'd have to say that the Apostle Paul was the most trained, educated, and knowledgeable man in the whole of the Bible. Now, I didn't say he was the wisest. I just said he was the best trained. He had the equivalent of two PhDs. Two. He's a smart fellow. That's not necessarily why God chose him, but it's neither the reason God would ignore him. Because the Apostle Paul had an understanding about him that God felt he could handle this message in the midst of a world that had never heard about it before. Now think about it for a moment. There's never been anything preached but the Ten Commandments. For 1,700 years, that's all the world's gotten who ever heard the gospel of circumcision. And Paul has to come into a world that has never heard anything else and bring something new. What if, you know, the best thing about me is that I don't base this message on a revelation I've had. I base it on three verses of Scripture that have counterparts of a dozen times in the Scripture that says this message is established before the foundation of the world. So when somebody says Litchman's preaching something new, tell them I got it before the world came along, before there was a devil, and before there was an Adam and an Eve. So I'm really not preaching something new. I may be handling it in a new way, but I think we need that. We need that understanding. The Apostle Paul came into a world preaching something new. He was preaching Christ. This is what he was preaching, what it sounded like to the crowd. He was preaching Jesus Christ has come back to this earth. But only the Gentiles. Well, there couldn't have been a Bible scholar sitting there that could have accepted that. Do you remember the numbers of times Jesus said that the end would come, that uh, I will come back? No man knows when I'm coming back but the Father. That doesn't have to do with the rapture. That has to do with the fulfillment of the kingdom message. I told you already, they looked for the end to come in their day. They thought that after the Lord died, the early church preached that Jesus is coming back. They figured he'd come back and establish the kingdom in their day. They never had this understanding that a new message was going forth. They really thought the kingdom would still be fulfilled. We assume that Peter still believed that up until about the 17th chapter of Acts that he was still preaching the kingdom would come. That's why finally in Acts 28, our text had to come forth where Paul would say, no more message there. There's no more kingdom message. There's, those things are not going to happen. The gospel now goes to the Gentile. 
God needed somebody who could explain this and tell it to the people. That's what we try to do in the Christ life. We're trying to tell the people this thing that is so ominous, so, so huge that a human being can't really explain it. I can't. I just have to beat around on the edges and hope that you could get a hold of it and the Holy Spirit will do something to you. That's the way it was with Paul. He came into a world that hadn't the slightest understanding of what he was saying. Jesus was coming back, but in human beings. Special messenger was needed for that. Somebody that God could use to tell the world this thing. Well, there are three statements in Paul's epistles that are outstanding. All three of them say this one way or another, that the whole world has received this gospel. That all men know now what the true gospel is. What was that gospel? The gospel sent to the Gentiles. The gospel that comes out of Acts 28, 28. The gospel of Jesus Christ that was given to Paul from Christ who now sat on the throne with the Father. Little thing you need to remember always that the gospel of Jesus Christ in the kingdom message was a gospel Jesus gave to the twelve while he was on earth. But the gospel that Paul calls Romans 1, 16, is it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation. That gospel was given by Jesus from heaven. The difference there was not for this earth at all. It was for those that were to be born again. So now we have a new dispensation of grace. And we have a special man that's raised up by God to preach it. I couldn't have handled that task. I know unless God had given me a supernatural wisdom like he did Solomon, I couldn't have handled it. But God found a man that could handle that message so that by the time he left this earth, it was said that that gospel was known over the known world of that day. I have but one prayer. I know most men are not going to accept this gospel, but I'd like for it to be known to the ends of this earth that every one of God's children had an opportunity to hear the message of Christ as our hope of glory. And that's why we sit in this room and many of you give and work and labor because we're getting this message out little by little. We have the same opposition Paul had from good people. Righteous people like Peter, James, and John who fought the message for many years who kept on preaching the erroneous gospel that made Paul to say, if any man preaches that gospel, let him be accursed. That's what he had to say about the Judaistic gospel from Jerusalem. We're living in that same day where a lot of God's children are advocating error and are denying the world this gospel of Christ and Him crucified. They're denying the world that. They've denied your friends and loved ones. There's not a family here, I'm certain, if it's like America, there's not a family here that doesn't have turmoil in it. You've got a divorce problem. You've got a drug problem. You may have an illegitimate birth problem. You may have an alcoholic problem. I don't think you can find a family anywhere that doesn't have these problems. I can remember a day when I was preaching that uh, we didn't have hardly any of these problems. The, the drunkard was so far-fetched, that's the number one thing we jumped on was drinking. Now think of all the problems we've got in our world today. Why would anybody want to deny you this information? Why would anybody stick a cross on their building and deny the people who came in the right to know that this is a new day of grace, that we're saved by what happened at that cross? 
Not because you join this church or do good works, but you're saved by Christ who died as your Savior with you in Him. Why would anybody deny you that? Why would anybody want to argue it? Let's take it a step further. Let's say I'm far out in some things, and I probably am. I get all excited. Let's say I'm not right in something I may say. But what if I was right in saying that Christ is the fulfillment, Colossians 2.10, of every human being? What if I'm right on that? The world doesn't know that. And if I preached anything else other than that, I would be denying the world the true gospel. Because that's big. If the problem in your life, in your family, the reason why you have the heartache and the heartbreak of living in this world, if the reason is because somebody has denied you the true gospel, then I would demand that gospel preached to my dying breath. I would not tolerate anything from anybody else. I would be like Paul. I'm determined to know nothing save Christ and Him crucified. I'd say that any man that preached any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached, let him be accursed. I'd say with John in his epistle that if any man comes to your door with any other gospel, turn him away. Why? If that's what makes human beings right. If that's what makes them act right and live right and be right, and I deny them that message, I've done them incalculable harm. I could have shot them with a gun and done them a favor than let them keep on living without that knowledge. So you see, the Christ life is not something we're just beating the drum for. It has to do with life. Living. It has nothing to do with churchanity. It has to do with God's creation of human beings. Our generation has been denied this gospel. We've sat under teaching and preaching for countless hours that meant nothing because it was denying us the core that what I need is an understanding that God put His Son in me and then I can live in an ungodly world. I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. And if you don't like it, I pray to God that it would get a hook in your mind and you'll never get free of the thought. Just in case I'm right, you'll never get free of it. Because I could give you all kinds of seminars. I used to do it. I could tell you how to do this and how to do that. I could tell you how to have a happy home, but it wouldn't answer the problem. I could tell you how to save your marriage, but it wouldn't answer the problem. I could tell you how to get rich quick, but it wouldn't answer your problem. Your problems, that's your core. There's something you don't understand and know. And that's Christ in you. So the Apostle Paul is a man that God sent to tell us that. And I'm here just echoing his words. This has been a long day for many of you. You've been a blessed group, and I know many of you are weary, and you're probably tired of hearing me talk, but I'm all wound up. I'll probably slow down a little before I get to the end. But I have to say, God love you. Give you a good night in the Word. Dream about Paul and heaven and Christ in you until the next session. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. That's such a wonderful chapter to read in. You might just want to start reading it now and not listen to me at all. It's powerful. It's wonderful. Praise be to God. Now, I would hope that you understand 
what life is all about. When God put human beings on this earth, He put them into the midst of unbelievable problems. I heard a preacher say not long ago that he was believing God that we could all go back to the Garden of Eden. I thought to myself, you're welcome, brother. Go ahead. Leave me out. Because the last place I'd want to go is the Garden of Eden. That was a rough place because the God made everything so beautiful and then he put evil in the big middle of it. An evil serpent. Satan. A tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I really don't want to go back to that. However, that's foolish for me to say because to this day life is made up of a lot of wonderful things in the Lord with a bunch of evil all about you. Evil. Why did God leave the contrast on this earth? Why did he put the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? It's because there was something God wanted out of the creature that he couldn't create and still be God. What is it God can't create? It's love out of you. Because love isn't love. If it's forced, if it's created, if somebody makes you produce it, it's isn't love anymore. Not the kind of love God has. And the scripture says God is love. So all God ever wanted from a creature was for the creature to love just love. That's all he wanted from Adam and Eve was that they love him. They didn't love him enough to keep his word. And that's been the problem with humanity ever since. So God has always left evil around his children in this world. We've always been surrounded. Whether it's Noah, whether it's Abraham, whether it's David, whether it's Jesus of Nazareth, God has left the evil here. He had the power to correct it at any time. But you have to understand about evil. Evil is a creation of God. He creates it. He's a producer of it. Isaiah 45 and 7, or the greatest boast God ever makes in the Scripture that I know of, He says, I create evil. Who does it? I do it. Why does He do it? Because evil is the force whereby we understand without God we can't exist. It isn't God's power that makes, him understand, makes us understand Him. It's evil. So the world must have contrast in it. Let me put that before you. Everything in the world is a contrast. You start to do something good and you run into evil. You want to help somebody and you run into a problem. You can't even help everybody you want to. You can't even do good every time you want to. Why? You run into a problem. You run into evil. So God allows the contrast. What does contrast do? It creates choice. I've gone through this before, but I have to tell you about it now. What does the contrast of good and evil do in our life? Produce a choice. Why must a choice be produced? Because all love comes out of choice. So the cycle that moves in our life goes like this. From contrast to choice to love. Love is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not produced by senses. Love is a choice. The only way a marriage will work is when two people make up their mind they love each other. If that love is based on, uh, well, if she treats me right, it isn't love anymore. 
not true love. If that love is based on the fact that uh, she argues all the time, it isn't love anymore, not true love. Love is a choice. You make your mind up to do it or not to do it. But the problem with humanity is most do not ever make their mind up about anything like that. So God keeps working on us. He keeps working on us. And our subject is the renewal of the mind. And the renewal of the mind is what takes place when you make a choice. Your mind is renewed to what is that must be for you to be what God wants you to be. So you're in the constant process of choice. As I've always said, life is nothing but a series of choices and living them out. Because you live out every choice you make, good or bad. It brings forth its fruit. And so our ultimate choice is to love God, love Him more than anything else. If our minds are to be renewed about this Christ that's in us, we need to listen to something Paul said right at this juncture. It's in Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4 with me. It's hard to find a break in this, so I'm just going to break right into the subject in verse 19. Ephesians 4.19 says, Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness and cleanness with greediness. Now here's our text. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Him, then put off concerning the former conversation, the former life, the old man. The old man is always the old man thinking, the old way of thinking, which is corrupt in deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You can see the Apostle Paul doesn't get away from this mind business. The thing that's most important to us is this 20th verse, but you've not so learned Christ. I take great stock in the King James Version of English. They were a bunch of Englishmen, basically, who got together and decided this is the way the Bible ought to read. And I love English. I do better at that than any other language because I don't know any other language. <laughs> so I love the Bible when the English is clear. Now, I've analyzed this verse 20 numerous times. It didn't say, but you have not so learned about Christ. It doesn't say that. The word about is not in it. It doesn't say, but you've not taken enough time to find out about Christ. It doesn't say that. It says you've not so learned Christ. And the first thing is that it is present tense. It's in the present tense. It means that Christ isn't coming. It means that Christ is there and you haven't learned it. It didn't say if you get enough faith one day Christ will show up. It says Christ is there. You haven't learned Him. This, this Bible is here. I haven't learned all of it. So what he's talking about is a Christ that is present. Not going to come, not can come, not will come if we do certain things, but he's talking about a present Christ. You have not so learned this Christ. Now where is the present Christ 
in the day that Paul speaks here, the book of Ephesians was written somewhere around uh, 62 or 63 A.D., uh, just uh, three or four, perhaps five years before Paul died. It's uh, his first prison epistle. It's uh, uh, his deepest epistle because it's got nothing in it about Judaism. He doesn't mention Israel. He doesn't mention the Jew. He doesn't talk about Abraham. He's past all that now, and he's down to the new creation race. He's down now to the group that's going to heaven that will not live on this earth who are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So his message has changed. It's radically changed. And he's talking now to people who have Christ in them. And he says, the problem with you Ephesians is you haven't learned the Christ that is in you. Well, I wonder what he'd say to us if he came here today. He'd take a look at us with all our troubles and trials and our grunting and groaning and crying and whatever we do. And you know what he'd say? He'd say, you haven't learned the Christ that's in you. He's in you, but you don't know him. You haven't learned him. You haven't learned Christ. What a statement that is. What is it that's happened to you and I in a lifetime? We have learned through the gospel that this believer has Christ in him. The Apostle Paul said that 186 times. He said that more than the Bible talks about faith or love or power or any of the glorious things we exalt as preachers. We always ignore this fact. It's the heaviest weight of Scripture in the New Testament. Plus, there are another 25 times that the term is used in Christ that Paul didn't give us. This is the way the gospel was intended to work, that this believer would know another person lived in him and that that believer would realize that the only life he lived was Christ. Well, that isn't what we've been taught. When I make this statement of 186, most believers sit there and say, well, I don't know about that. I never heard that before. You're right. We haven't heard that before. You've heard all the faith scriptures preached. They're just a small percentage of that 146. But you've never heard that preached because that constitutes the true gospel that comes only by revelation. So most of us don't know this relationship with God. I'll tell you the relationship we know. Here you have, you have the believer and you have Christ out here somewhere. Now what does that believer spend his life doing? Trying to get a hold of this Christ. Yes, sir. He does good things. Good things that the Bible says to do to get a hold of Christ. Oh, what does he do? He reads his Bible. He goes to church. He loves the brethren. What is he doing? If he does all these things, he'll get more Christ. To get a hold of Christ. Did you ever do something desperate to get a hold of Christ? Doctor says, Grandma's dying with cancer. Your first thought, oh, I don't want her to die. I need her. God, i got to get a hold of you. So what do you do? You start running around trying to find Christ. Radio preacher comes on. He says, folks, i got it right here. If you'll write me this pamphlet, we'll heal you. Just send me an offering and I'll send it back to you. What is he doing? He's trying to get you to Christ. What are you doing? I'm trying to find him. Oh, I need the Lord. See, there's nothing wrong with these things. 
They're not bad. But what are they? They are operations of ignorance because this believer already has Christ in him. I want you to get this vividly. When we do things within ourselves to get more of God, have you ever thought what that must do to the Christ who lives in you? Paul knew this. The renewed mind must come to this truth. The renewed mind must say at some juncture or other that my problem is I haven't learned Christ. What's wrong with this believer here? He's ignorant. Ignorant of what? Ignorant of the Christ that's in him. He hasn't learned Christ. Well, my message this, these days, it, as crude as I may come across, my message is, why in this world should I concentrate on this believer knowing his Bible better? Or which church is right? Or how to love? Or how to get power? Or how to be used of God? Why in the world would I want to take my time talking about those things when all these things center in him trying to get a Christ that's outside of him? And he'll ignore the Christ that's in him. He'll ignore the Christ that's in him. I don't know whether you've ever been in some of the modern day meetings or not, but they have a thing where everybody stands and sings and praises sometimes for an hour, hour and a half. I heard one of their leaders say this last week, why they did that. Somebody asked him point blank, why in the world you have all these people stand up and singing for an hour? He said, we're getting brainwashed. He just said it right. He said they get tired, they get emotionally fixed. You can get the same thing through drinking wine. You get them all fixed. And then he said, when they sit down, I can tell them whatever I want to. Did you know that was going on? What is it? Anything to ignore the Christ that is in you. Who is it that doesn't want us to know that? Who is it that wants us to stay ignorant? The old square head. That's Satan if you can't read. <laughs> he doesn't want you to know that. If you ever claim Christ as your life, he's out and he's lost. It's over. Don't mean he won't keep trying, but he's lost. He's lost the battle. He's lost. So Paul said, the issue with the believer is that we learn Christ. What Christ? The Christ that lives in you. Well, what are you going to do with Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, that's a cardinal choice. That hurts because all your life, Jesus of Nazareth has been precious. He's been wonderful. This Jesus that lived on earth, Jesus of Nazareth, precious. He finally died for our sins. What are you going to do with him? How are you going to treat him? Well, we're going to leave him just like he is. But what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? He moved up here and sits on the throne with the Father. God and Christ sits on the throne with him. Now, when God said that there is to be a new gospel for the Gentiles, you know what Christ did? He moved down here to Brother Paul and he gave him another gospel. It was not a gospel devoid of Jesus of Nazareth, 
But it was a further word on Jesus of Nazareth. And what was the further word? The further word was that Christ was in the believer. That was different. Same Christ who gave the gospel to the twelve, gave the gospel to Paul, but it was a different gospel. Now, that whole gospel would center on Christ in the believer. That's why he made mention of it 186 times. Because it was different. Most of us have gone a lifetime and been denied that gospel that had to do with Christ in you. And so we've done everything we could to reach a Christ outside of us, to feel better, to feel happy, to have joy, to feel an anointing. When all the time we have Christ in us. I want to take you to the first place where I think mind renewal needs to begin. The first place. See if I can clean this board off a little. Where is the first place you need to renew your mind? Well, we might as well start with the basics. The first place of mind renewal has got to be in what we call the Trinity. The Trinity. How are you going to treat the Trinity? When everything you've learned in the Scriptures up to Paul's revelation has got to have a correctment to it. Not to get rid of it. It's of God. All Scriptures inspired by God. But it's got to have a correctment to what God is doing now. What are you going to do with the Trinity? The first place your mind needs to be renewed is with the person of God, with the title God. If you're going to learn Christ, then you're going to have to understand how this Christ you learn got into you. How did Jesus get in you? If Paul said 186 times, we're in Christ, Christ is in us, Paul said, boldly, Christ liveth in me. How did he get in him? How does Jesus get in a believer? By birthing. By birthing. Jesus of Nazareth said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It didn't happen until the day of Pentecost, but when it happened, what took place was, this great God who had ruled for 4,300 years from Adam through John the Baptist to Jesus of Nazareth, that great God had changed. Not from being God, He'll always be God, but He had changed in a form. Now He was no longer just in the form of the great God Creator and Almighty God of Judgment. He was in another form. He was a Father. He was a Father. What's the difference? Great difference. Most believers don't know God as their Father yet. Because they got all of these ideas that come out of the Old Testament where Sennacherib could kill off all those people with a jawbone of an ass and, and uh, 50 million people could be destroyed in Noah's flood and only eight saved. That's the way they think of God. You ever read the story from atheists about God? You ever hear an atheist talk about God? He picks all those awesome things where Almighty God did this and Almighty God did that, the bad things, the horrible things. He killed whole, He killed the whole world at one time and uh, washed it clean with water. Almighty God, the first place your mind must be renewed 
is that He's no longer just God to you, but He's a Father. He's Father. you got a king of a kingdom. Well, we hate to do this. Our time is up for today. We're going to stop right here, but we will pick up right where we left off next week on this podcast. Now, again, visit our website, if you will, christ-life.org. Read all about this wonderful Christ life that we're so proud of and that we try to live daily. And we want you to please tell others about this podcast if it's something that you really are feeling very special about, which we hope you are. These are very special teachings at a very important time in our life, so please tell others about us. We'd like to thank Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful sessions. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And every week, Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship produces this podcast. She's great. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ Life.